Have you ever wondered what you would think the first time you had a gun pointed at your head? Well, for today's guest, it was not what you would have expected. He worked during the notorious 80s as an undercover officer for the Queensland Police Drug Squad, and he has detailed his experiences in his new book, Drugs, Guns and Lies. Ladies and gentlemen, the person you want at any dinner party, Keith Banks. Welcome to One Moment, Please the podcast where our guests take a moment to tell their stories of how they've overcome adversity to achieve success and you take a moment to tune in. So bring on the inspiration. Thanks for coming on and um, and doing the podcast. I appreciate it. No, pleasure. Thanks for asking. So you've just released your book, Drugs, Guns and Lies. It seems absolutely fascinating and it's about your time as an undercover police officer when you're in the Queensland police. Yep. What made you get into being a police officer in the first place? Um, I'd, uh, I'd wanted to be a cop from the time I was pretty young and, uh, and I'd grown up in some challenging circumstances. Um, my home life wasn't wonderful. I loved my mother to death, um, but she was married to a man who, uh, my stepfather this is, uh, who's probably battle with alcohol wasn't wonderful. Um, he was quite an abusive person um, to me, particularly mentally and physically. Um, and and I, I'd grown up in an environment where I realised very early that um, it probably wasn't normal. Um, and I just wanted to be in a position where I grew up to do something to help people and, and really protect people from bullies. So for me, um, we moved around a lot. In Queensland, he was an unskilled labourer, so I, I, I think I went to something like, I've lost count, 11 or 12 schools in the first two years. Mm-hmm. Um, in the first two years? First two years, yeah, which wow. was uh, quite challenging. You know, a new kid at school, you always get beaten up. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I, got, I got used to that, I guess. Um, I think I might have been eight or nine when I, I wanted to be a policeman. Um, we were spending a lot of time in country Queensland, and, and the local cop, in towns where they were good, were really respected, but I also also saw police that weren't. Um, you know, in those days, uh, transfers to the country or transfers to the bush, as it's called in Queensland terms, were often used as a punishment. So you didn't have the best um, the best police in those some of those country towns. That's certainly all changed now. How old were you when your um, when your stepfather came into your life? Uh, I was six. Okay. And, and uh, so yep. I'm reading between the lines and you probably had a fair bit to do with these country coppers and coming out. Yeah, more, it was, it was later. I think the first, um, well, you, you sort of forget things when you're young, I guess, but mm. I remember the police turned up to our house in Cairns when we were living up there and I may have been 11 or 12. Um, and they came to resolve a, uh, a domestic dispute. And, and mm. I remember thinking, wow, these guys actually brought some, some safety and, um, and normalcy into my life for a short time. And and I remember being struck by the fact that, you know, they're, they're able to actually make a difference. And at that stage, I was torn between the uh, Defence Force and uh, and the police. Because as, as, I'd, as I'd gone into high school, I joined the Army Cadet System, um, and I'm, I'm not sure whether it still exists now, but that was, um, that was a, a system whereby we, I think we met once a week and we paraded and we were in uniform and we were taught to shoot, we were taught to um, live off the land, we were taught to navigate, all of those things that 
I think were a hangover from maybe the World War Two era, where mm -hmm. um, where army cadets were were trained for warfare in those days, and and they generally became the men that joined up in World War One, Two, Korea, um, Vietnam, etc. And I was really drawn to the um, to the structure of it and the and the strong male role models, and it doesn't take a shrink to figure out why. Mm -hmm. um, and and I was um, I was probably well on the way to applying for Duntroon in Canberra, which is now the Defence Force Academy. Um, but in reality, I just couldn't stay at home for another year. It would have I was in uh, the end of year eleven, and uh, and I remember thinking I just can't stay in this environment anymore. And around that time, we had a, a police recruiter who came to school and, and talked about the cadet system in the police, uh, which was uh, they took kids in from year 10. Um, so you did year 10, sorry, wrong, took them in at the end of year 10, and they did uh, year 11, 12, and then another 12 months. So I applied for it, and um, I was successful and left home the year of turn, six, uh, year of turn 17. So you finished off your schooling within the, that place? Yeah, went, structure? yeah, yeah. Went to the academy. I did year twelve there, um, and uh, and then a further twelve months. So you know, in the cadet system, we were um, we were all wearing uniform. Um, we were doing physical training, gee, two sessions a day. I think we were marching and being yelled at and made to clean tiles with toothbrushes for punishment and. You know all the fun stuff, really. <laughs> Old school movie stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was. Um, I've written very affectionately about a uh, a drill sergeant there, and every cop that went through, gee, I think from the late fifties up until probably the early nineties would know of this man. Um, he was the most fearsome individual I'd ever seen in my life. Um, a big Irish, white haired brawny, red-faced, screaming um, behemoth. <laughs> and, uh, and he terrorised us for two years. He, he'd been in the Royal Navy in World War II. He'd actually been sunk twice, um, so had no sense of humour about Germans. <laughs> and... Uh, oh, and uh, one, I'm just Probably thinking... rightfully so, though, at that stage, <laughs> if he's been in the war and That's sunk right. twice. I remember there was one... I haven't thought about this for years, actually. There was one poor cadet... Who had a um had a plastic model of the Bismarck in his room, and and this drill sergeant uh, he, he inspected our rooms every day. So just to go back a step, we'd parade outside our rooms every morning in full uniform. He'd walk through and he'd inspect at random, and he'd look for dirt and unmade you know beds that weren't made perfectly and dirty shoes in the cupboard and and all of that classic paramilitary stuff. And I remember hearing screaming one morning, uh, and. One of the kids had had a, as I said, a, um, a plastic model of the Bismarck that he'd put together. You know, you used to make little models of planes and ships. And Sergeant Malloy walked in and found it and just went off. <laughs> and, as I say, had no sense of humour about Germans. Um, so I take it the Bismarck was a German ship. Oh, sorry. Yeah, I'm, ta I'm taking for granted everyone knows that. Yeah, the Bismarck. The thank you. The Bismarck was. Um, the Bismarck was one of the uh, the top German destroyers in World War Two and was responsible for sinking thousands of tons of Allied shipping. Um, okay. And, and clearly, Tom, having been sunk by some Germans a couple of times, uh, yeah, didn't particularly. He um, wasn't particularly taken with the fact that a police cadet under his watch would have a German warship model in his room. Fair um, enough. So you learned very quickly with Tom to do what you were told, and uh, 
So I had two years of that, and and at the end of that two years, I uh, I left. The, I graduated from the academy and, and spent um, I think five months waiting to turn nineteen to be a sworn officer, which is so young. Um, and uh, and I came back to the academy. I, I was working in stations. Came back to the academy for the swearing in ceremony, and Tom Sergeant Malloy was. Uh, was taking the parade and you know and he lied us all up and I thought here we go he's going to have one more one more yelling screaming match at us and instead he actually congratulated all of us um, someone called him sergeant he said my name's not sergeant it's Tom congratulations everybody um, and he walked up to me and having terrorized me for two years we knew each other fairly well <laughs> and um, and he walked up to me and said son if you couldn't take my shit in the academy there's no way you could have coped with what you were going to see on the street and he shook my hand and said, well done. Um, so it was all about weeding people out who weren't really keen to be there, if that makes sense. And it's a very yeah. a very military way to do things as well. Um, I don't, I, I know for certain police academies don't operate that way anymore. But, uh, but you know, learning to, to clean tiles in the gymnasium with a toothbrush because you hadn't kept your shoes clean or some other transgression really made you um, understand the importance of doing the right thing. It's probably how he got uh, trained back uh, in the day too. Yeah, I would think so. Yeah, yeah. Mm. So you were 19 and you became a sworn officer. Yep. What was the next step that you, you said you worked at station, police stations. Were you then assigned to a police station? Like how did it Yeah, how did my first, I wanted to get out and I wanted to, you know, battle crime and uh, do all that stuff I've been so excited about getting ready for. And my first station was Barden um, in Brisbane, which was one of the sleepiest little places you can imagine. And my first job, <laughs> my first job day one was to take the police car out and drive down to a pedestrian crossing. And I think there might have been three or four school kids that crossed the pedestrian crossing every morning to go to the other side and catch the school bus. And I was there to stop the traffic and help the kids across the road. And I thought, oh, great. Um, so my first <laughs> six is, weeks This was, is not me with a cape on and saving the world. That's exactly right. Thinking, oh, my mates are working in exciting places, and here I am. <laughs> and um, I, I think I had six weeks there or something, but uh, that's where you, know, you learn that the police force functions essentially on paperwork and, and literally in those days and hard copy paper, um, six copies of everything with carbon paper and old typewriters oh, and so on. And, um, and then, you know, we rotated around. But I had a, I had a moment of, um, of fear uh, during an un, just a two to ten shift uh, in that sleepy little place. And this really brought home the uncertainty of police work and the danger of police work. Um, I... I I'd come from the country, not a lot of cops carried guns then, you know, I was pro-police being armed, but I thought, yeah, you know, I'll, I'll apply for one when I need it, because in those days, it wasn't mandatory to be armed, and a lot of police had Really? Been, yeah. So you just... Just had your handcuffs and your baton. Um, what What year was this? Uh, 77. I was so probably a very British model. Um, yeah. I imagine. Oh, oh there, there were... Some police did carry firearms, some didn't. Um... It was really individual choice, and, and a lot of cops had the older cops anyway had the attitude that if they weren't armed, the crims weren't wouldn't uh, wouldn't hurt them too badly, which mm. is quite interesting because there'd been a number of police killed in domestic disturbances where you know they'd turned up and everyone had a gun in those days. Again, younger people now couldn't fathom it, but you could go to um, a Target store or a Kmart and buy a two two three rifle, which is highly powered, 
uh, without showing any ID. You just go, I'll have that one, thanks, mate. There's my money, and off you go. Um, wow. Yeah. So I knew I knew that I knew that they were more prevalent back in those days before the the laws came in after mm. Port Arthur, but I didn't realize that you could just literally walk in off the street and purchase yeah. one. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. Um, so when I started undercover work, that's what I did. I went and bought a, a shotgun and, and a high-powered rifle and so on, and, and I had a false name. You know, there was no no issue with identity. Um, but I, I was on a two-to-ten shift uh, very early. might have been three or four weeks after being sworn in. Went to a domestic dispute. Um, you know, and of course, having grown up in, in domestic, seeing domestics all the time, um, mm. you know, I was probably used to it. But, but I remember I walked up and stood in front of the door and knocked on the door, which is... You never, ever do that in, uh, in operational survival mode. We weren't taught any of that. Um, you know, we had two years of learning law. So there was very little training about how to operate in the street. And, uh, and this was a, um, a corrugated glass door. And I saw a figure approaching the door with something. looked like, I don't know what it was. It was long. Maybe it would have been a broom. I don't know. He opened the door and it was a Winchester 12-gauge shotgun and he put it straight in my face. And, uh, and I was 19 and the... <laughs> my daughters are still horrified when I tell people this, but the only thing I could think of was I'd only had sex with one girl. And uh... <laughs> Oh, that's so funny. <laughs> that's the first thing I thought of. <laughs> that's right, because I thought, I'm going to die tonight. Damn. And um... <laughs> it's funny the things that go through your mind, I'll tell you. Um and uh, and my offsider, who was a, a, a senior Connie, I don't know, I thought he was really old. He probably might have been early 30s. Um, he was one of the few that carried a, a revolver. And he pulled his revolver out and cocked the hammer back and pointed at this bloke and said, well, if you shoot him, I'm going to shoot you. And I was thinking, please don't anybody shoot anybody. It'd be good. Um, <laughs> so that all resolved itself. And uh, we handed this guy over to the detectives to be charged and Went back to the station, made a cup of tea, and uh, and this guy said, "You're right, mate." And even then, the culture—I knew the culture was: do not show weakness, do not admit that anything upsets you. And I said, "Yeah, no, it's fine." Um, and I went home that night. I didn't drink in those days, and I just went home and I, I just thought, "My God." Um, got up the next morning, went for an eight to four shift. Um, back to the, back to the station, and the sergeant said, "Yeah, heard about last night, uh, Banksy. You're right." And I said, "Yeah, boss, I'm fine." And I sat down at the old typewriter with my six, my original and original page and six copies or whatever it was, and typed out an application for a firearm. And uh, and I think it took six weeks to arrive or something. And when I got it, I never went anywhere without it again. Didn't matter whether I was going down to the shop to buy some lunch. I had a gun with me because that just terrified me and just showed to me the uncertainty of the occupation. So that was my first brush with excitement. Mm. Hmm. I would have thought that um, it probably shied you away from undercover work rather than wanting to go well head first into it. Yeah, you'd probably think anybody who was uh, who was normal it may have done that. <laughs> Are you saying you're not normal, Keith? <laughs> <laughs> oh, look, I, I had a thirst for adventure, and um, and on reflection, all these years later, um, I, I'm. I understand now that I was trying to prove myself to a, uh, a stepfather who didn't particularly like me, um, and it's the classic, you know, son, male role model thing, I guess. Um, I, I was I was trying to prove to him, subconsciously anyway, 
that I was mm. more worthy than he'd told me I was all my life. Um, yeah. yeah, it wasn't wasn't a very pleasant childhood. So that's 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 the whole psychological thing, I guess. But yeah. more importantly, I just wanted to be at the sharp end of policing, and I wanted to be the best cop I could. So I I um, you know, left left that little station, went and walked the beat. Then uh, I applied for a mobile patrol unit um, or station, which was, um, and if you have any American listeners, they'd they'd recognise this immediately. Mm-hmm. It's uh. It's where you work with a permanent partner and you patrol a permanent division. Um, you're on the road all the time. I've heard Victoria Police talk about being in the divisional van, etc. But they yeah. still... I just did um, Narelle Fraser and she was talking about the Divi van. Ah, the Divi van, yeah. Um, <laughs> well, see, Queensland had this model of mobile patrols that no other police force in the country did or has had. And, uh, and it was Commissioner Whitrod, who was a reformist police commissioner before he was ousted by, uh, by the infamous Terry Lewis. Um, Whitrod based this on the Los Angeles policing model. And okay. we actually had KPIs, believe it or not, in Queensland. God. Uh, and our KPIs were that you would get a police car anywhere in metropolitan Brisbane within three minutes if it was an urgent matter. Because it was just saturated patrolling. It was one of the best places I ever worked. Um, wow. And that's where the action was. Brisbane was a pretty violent place in the 70s mm. and 80s. Um, people didn't start shooting at us until probably the mid to late 80s, I guess. Um, first shooting I was involved in was 1987. So that, but it was still quite a violent place. And, uh, and working mobile patrols with a permanent partner, you know, who you knew very, very well um, was fabulous. As opposed to working out of a police station getting on a car with someone that you didn't work with all the time and doing, you know, the horrible things of policing like dead bodies and death messages and mm. fatal road accidents. We didn't do any of those. We, um, we were on the road to, to react to urgent jobs and some mundane, but we had a, a brief to, um, to intercept anybody who was suspicious that came across our patrol area and, um, and really take all avenues of, uh, of policing that we needed. So, for instance, you'd pull over a car that was a bit sus. Hard to explain why cops end up getting a sick sense about this. But you mm-hmm. pull a car over, on a look in the boot, open the boot, it's full of stolen um, stolen TVs or jewellery or whatever. You were then able, as a uniform cop, to execute search warrants and run that inquiry or that investigation that normally would have been handed over to detectives. So it was a real, it was a great training ground and just a great bunch of people, and I loved it. How um, long did you do that for? I was in mobiles for the first time, I think for almost, oh, probably two and a half, almost three years. Um, okay. And we're on the road one night. I didn't know undercover cops existed. Um, I remember I saw some guy with long hair and a beard ride a motorbike into uh, the depot where our mobile patrols operated from and start filling up at a, a police petrol bowser. And, of course, me being me, I strolled over and boned him and said, mate, what do you think you're doing here? And he produced a police ID card, and I went, oh, "Wow, who's this guy?" And it turned but out that he... blow his cover if he's well. No, undercover he wasn't. And... He wasn't an undercover cop. He was a surveillance cop. I didn't know they existed either. Oh. Um, and it was, you know, after two years in the academy and three years on the road with paramilitary stuff, um, you know, haircut, discipline, when to take a meal, all that sort of thing. Seeing this was uh, was something that really piqued my interest. And um, so I thought, wow, how do I get into that? Because that looks like a pretty cool life. 
not knowing undercovers existed until not so long after that, we had a, um, a shots fired any unit call in the city. And, you know, that's what you do. You race to these things. And, um, and my partner and I arrived and there were two cars. One had clearly run into the other and a couple of guys handcuffed on the ground and these other scruffy people all around them. So we jumped out of the car and one of them declared himself, it's called declaring yourself when you ID yourself, um, pulled his ID out and said, drug squad, blah, blah, blah. And we went, oh, okay. And he came over and said, look, can you just grab our undercover and throw him in the back of your car, make it look good and take him back to our office? And I turned to my offsider and said, the what? And he said, yeah, undercover, mate. That'd be that guy over there. And I went, we got undercovers. So <laughs> <laughs> that's how I found out about that. And um, and I then just did everything I could to drag and drag someone um, – or sorry, not drag someone. I did everything I could to identify who I could talk to to get me an interview with the boss of the drug squad to volunteer for it. Um, and it took maybe took maybe two months. And uh, and I was speaking with a senior policeman at Mobiles who'd been a detective and someone I had a lot of respect for. And uh, and I was known as a uh, I was known as a pretty good operator by then. You know, I was I was keen and so on. And I said, look, boss, this is what I want to do. And he said, yeah, you'd probably be all right. Let me make a phone call. So he got me an interview and. Uh, I went down to the drug squad, met the senior sergeant. We had a chat for maybe 15 minutes. And in those days, I was a baby-faced little guy. And uh, and I think within a week, um, I got a phone call to say, yep, you're in. Take a couple of weeks off, start growing a beard, and uh, and come and see us. And wow. no, no other psychological testing. <laughs> there was none of that in those days. Um, and essentially, that's what I did. So I turned up day one of undercover and went to the office and gee, within, I think, a day or two, I was sitting in a pub uh, buying a bag of pot. Um, so no training? No. No, no training. We um, we didn't have any training course. And in fact, I was only literally this morning, uh, I got a phone call from a guy called Pete, who I've, uh, I've mentioned in the book. Um, Pete was my first, yeah, unofficial training officer, I guess, in undercover. He, he spent a couple of weeks with me and you know, I went along on a couple of buys with him and watched what he did, and uh, he introduced me to a dealer that he'd been scoring from, and uh, handed him over to me, and and that was pretty much it. You just you got a uh, a small pistol, some cash, uh, some false number plates from a cardboard box on the drug squad because we used our own cars then, and put them false plates on, and uh, away you go, buddy. Tell us when you've got something. So you used your own car. Yeah. It was um it was pretty uh pretty fly by the seat of your pants in those days. So um, what oversight did you have? Well, that's a very good question. Um, not a lot, <laughs> not a lot at all. We uh, we we basically we didn't work any shifts. Of course, we just spent time either with an informer, um, who sometimes the informer would be introducing an undercover into into a drug circle in in exchange to have their sentence uh, reduced or a recommendation to have their sentence reduced if they'd been arrested and charged with dealing or informers would come and volunteer to work with the drug squad to knock out their competition. Um, oh, that's interesting. I never thought about that. Yeah, yeah. So you really didn't trust informers as far as you could throw them with the exception of one man that I've written about and I clearly haven't used his real name, um, but, but he passed away a few years ago, sadly. He he um he volunteered to be an informer, and gee, he looked like he should have been on the cover of Hell's Angels Weekly. He was a big tough guy, 
Um, Hal's Angels, for those that aren't in Australia, is a bikey um, outlaw motorcycle game. Outlaw, yeah, okay, thank you. I, I think all of our uh, our American listeners and Canadian listeners would be very familiar with the Angels. Um, okay. And the UK, are they in the UK as well? They're worldwide. The Hell's Angels okay. are, the, are the the preeminent outlaw motorcycle gang around the world, and I could talk to you about that for hours too. Um, let's not. Let's not. <laughs> I, um, don't, I don't want them on my doorstep. <laughs> Very well organised they are. Um, so yeah, so this this guy had come forward and uh, he was an informer because he hated drug dealers for no other reason, and he actually made quite a reasonable living out of it as well because at the end of every undercover operation, the informer received a cash reward, and that was all well on the surface of it legitimate. Um, but you know, a, a report was done. It went up to I think the detective superintendent or assistant commissioner, and they signed off a particular cash reward based on the amount of arrests and quality of the drugs and that sort of stuff. Um, but he, I, I probably learned more from him than I did from the police force, actually. So how did he know all these drug dealers that he was informing in if he hated drug dealers? And that was his job, really. Um, he just he oh. looked like he looked like a bad guy. And, uh, and because he'd grown up in – he'd actually grown up in a bit of – Melbourne, I believe, he told me he worked as a bouncer on a pretty notorious hotel down here. And uh, in the old days when um, when Melbourne crims used to hand their firearms over at the door when they went to have a drink and then pick them up on the way out again. Um, and I think if you talk to any, any Victorian detectives around the 70s and 80s, they'll absolutely say that was right. Um, mm-hmm. But he'd, uh, I called him the big fella because he was, he was a big boy. And he just spent his time infiltrating areas, setting up uh, drug deals, then he'd bring one of us in as either his business partner or um, a cousin or a mate of a mate, you know, that sort of thing. And then once we were enmeshed into a circle and we were buying from dealers, he'd just quietly slide off to the left and not be seen again. Um, You mentioned earlier that when you were introduced to the drug squad that you had um, some undercover uh, coppers hand over their drug dealers to you. How mm. did how did that happen? Like, what did that look like? Because obviously the drug dealers didn't know what was going on. Yeah, well, well, what it was was, uh, so Pete, the first guy I worked with, um, he took me to a house where this guy named Ivan was. And he, Pete had said, look, I'm, uh, I'm getting out of the scene for a while. You know, my, my missus and I are going up north and, you know, we're going to lay low, blah, blah, blah. And Pete, Pete, I've written about him. He had an air of quiet menace and uh, impressed the heck out of me. wasn't a big bloke, but he just had this, he looked like he had this capability of violence just right under the, the surface. If needed to be, he'd break your legs. Um, and I wanted to cultivate that because I thought that was a very, very handy thing to have. And oh, not the actual breaking of the legs, but the image. <laughs> Most people would, you know cross the road and avoid someone like that <laughs> yeah yeah well well see this is the exciting thing fiona this was all new to me this was a world that i wanted to inhabit because i as as that i was 21 when i volunteered for this by the way um okay. so i think i turned 22 turned 22 about two months later um i wanted to be I wanted to be the sort of cop that actually made a difference and, and heroin was everywhere in, in those days, um, you know, and good quality heroin as well. So the average the average purity of heroin in a street deal can be between, depends where you are, 5% to 20% heroin, the rest is all add-ons, yeah, like 
like laxative and baby powder and, and or not baby powder but baby milk powder that sort of stuff okay. um so in those days purity of heroin was probably 50 percent and people were dying of overdoses you know all the time and and i wanted to be working somewhere that made a difference that did something about that so to for me to be an undercover cop and and i ended up buying a lot of heroin from a lot of dealers um for me to do that that really gave me a sense of accomplishment um and to learn my trade, I had to develop an aura that wasn't me. You know, I was I was a really nice young bloke, and I needed to develop um, a presence that was totally foreign. Yeah, so I modelled myself on Pete's Pete's approach, and and uh, and I actually inadvertently tapped into a side of me that I didn't think uh, had been there. I became a pretty potentially and sometimes sometimes in reality violent guy if i needed to be um and and living that world and 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 my friend larry used to call it uh nida on steroids so nida for any other listeners the institute of dramatic arts the national institute mm -hmm. so it was like learning to be an actor but doing it for real did you have a family at this stage uh my family lived in charters towers so my mother <clears throat> my mother and my stepfather were still together um so mum was in, in Charters Towers, which was 120 kilometres west of Townsville, with a okay. population of about, oh, I don't know, eight to 10,000 people, if that. So, so you didn't have wife or kids no, or No, God, no. I was, only, I was barely able to look after myself, let alone okay. be married. <laughs> so were you able, were you 100% all the time in this undercover world or were you able to sort of hmm. jump in and out of it, see your family, see friends, or were um, you fully submersed? No, I, I was as deep as I could be. I um I even I, I was training in uh, in martial arts and still do now, but in those days I was training about five days a week in a Taekwondo um school. And mm -hmm. I, I went in and I told everybody that I'd been found with some, some pot in my uh, in my locker and I'd been sacked. So as far as all my friends there knew, with the exception of one, um I I was a disgraced cop. So uh, school friends, I went to a school reunion and I made something up. I can't remember what that was. Um, that I'd uh, I'd only stayed in the police force for six months. It wasn't wasn't enough for me, and I made up some occupation. So um, my family knew what I was doing. Well, my mother found out what I was doing when I did an undercover job in Townsville, and I had to lay low for three or four days because my description was everywhere. Um, and I went out and knocked on the door of her house. I hadn't seen her since the academy with a, uh, a beard halfway down on my chest and an earring and long hair. And uh, she didn't recognise who I was. <laughs> and I said, it's me, your son. And her, <laughs> God bless her, the first thing she said was, have you been sacked? And I said, well, no, I'm still a cop, but <laughs> let me explain. Kind of, but not really. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, so that's how she found out. But, um, and, and I guess to explain that, in those days, when an undercover agent finished an operation your your intention was to buy as much as you could to to work your way up the distribution chain um and then set up a, a large drug deal so if it was marijuana you'd be setting up i don't know 10 20 pounds in a buy if it was heroin you might be setting up four to five ounces in a buy um and then we did what was called a buy bust so you'd meet the the target you'd have a substantial amount of money You'd have the deal, um, and that was about the only time we'd have surveillance police looking at us. And as you 
exchange the money for the drugs, then the theory was the surveillance team would swoop in and uh, and arrest you know you'd all been arrested and, and dragged away, and then the dealer and everyone else that I'd bought from would all have their doors kicked in. They'd all be arrested and charged with supply drugs or traffic drugs, depending on the quantity. Now, the problem with that was that um, when this happened, each person who'd sold drugs to the agent, in this case me, were told what my full name was and the fact that I was an undercover policeman. So my <gasps> cover was no! blown every time. Yeah, yeah, it was, um, it was pretty wild west, I tell you. But then that means that everyone would know yeah. everybody. So how did you maintain yeah. your cover? Well, so what would happen then is, uh, so the first job I did with this guy, Ivan, that Pete handed me over to, I think I, I bought, um, the buy bust was five pounds of dope and uh, and I'd bought speed and hash from him and I'd bought um, heroin and, and sticks of, of pot and speed and acid and whatever from a number of his cohorts. So they were all arrested. And, uh, and then what happened is, yep, okay, that's all good. Um, my next job would be in Cairns. So... 2,000 kilometers away. So, you know, you you'd go to Cairns and you go, right, how am I going to change my appearance? So with the first job, I had this big, long black beard, as I said. I shaved it all off and left a goatee on. And uh, I'd grow my hair a bit longer. Or You know, so all we could do was change our appearance as much as we could with facial hair or shorter or longer hair or whatever, and then hope for the best, which... um made life a bit interesting yeah the hope for the best strategy is probably not something that mm. you want to rely on <laughs> well no and uh and and look i i I've, again i've i've written this book very openly um and very honestly there's no smoke and mirrors in this um and in fact i wasn't able to write about my entire two years of undercover i'd need you know five books i guess um we could do a series of these podcasts keith <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we could because I could tell you stories that'll make your hair curl. Um, <laughs> but um, so I, I've written about the the major things and, and the challenges. You know, I I was in uh, I was in Cairns. Oh, it was when I I'd finished undercover, gone back to uniform for a while, become a detective, worked my way back to the drug squad, and I fell into undercover again because I had a bit of a talent for it. And and I went to Cairns with uh, with my colleague Larry who had been undercover way too long and he was just a, a, a nervous wreck, the poor guy. Um, so I, I fell back. I was supposed to be his controller, but it, we'd set up a, a unit and we just went out and bought drugs together, um, as you do. And uh, and I was recognised in a nightclub by uh, a guy I'd gone to school with in year eight in Cairns before we moved to Charters Towers. So I, you know, I was, by that stage, I think I was maybe 24. I hadn't seen him since year eight, so that would have been easily, God, 10 years? Maybe more. He should be on the police force being that could have recognized well, him. Yeah, people. yeah. Um hey, scary actually, because yeah. I thought I'd grown a beard back again, went up to order drinks, and it turned out he actually owned the nightclub. Um it had been uh left to him, I think, by his dad, or his dad had bought him an interest or something. Anyway, um he came up to and, and I was with uh, a guy who turned out to be an escaped murderer. We didn't know that at the time. Um, oh fairly gosh. affable bloke too. Um, <laughs> and, oh, I'm sure all escape murder is very affable. <laughs> yeah, well, he wasn't. He was actually a bit of fun. Um, oh and, God. <laughs> there's a long story there too. But uh, okay. And anyway, Brett came up to serve a few drinks, and I went, "Yeah, we'll have rum and cokes." I drank in those days, three rum and cokes. He looked at me, he said, "Keith," and I looked at him and thought, "I know exactly who you are. 
but my name's not Keith at the moment. And, um, so, you know, in a situation like that, all you can do is just call him a few choice names and say, I don't know who the fuck you think you're talking to, but blah, 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 um, give me my drinks. And um, and as I turned away to hand the, the rum to the guy who I found out later had escaped after killing two people, um, he looked at me with this, uh, it still chills me to think about it, you know, you, you'll you'll hear people use the saying, eyes without a soul or black, you know, black eyes, evil eyes. That's what this guy looked at me like. And I remember thinking, wow. And um, and he said he called you Keith. And I said, yeah, he did. He's a dickhead. And, uh, and then I, we finished our little, uh, our, had a few drinks, set up another drug deal, went back home and I um, went back to the unit. And I was thinking, God, what am I going to do about this? Because the last thing I, I needed, Cairns was a pretty small place then, was this guy, Brett, to start telling people, oh, I could have sworn this is someone I went to school with, whose name's Keith, but he tells me it's not him. And that, that would have been a worse, uh, or potentially a worse result. So I actually went in and saw him the next day and uh, and asked to see the manager and got him aside and said, yeah, it's me, mate, and this is what I'm doing. I really need you to shut up. And to his credit, he said, oh, well, he said, um, how about you bring this guy back in tonight and I'll make a big fuss of you and apologize and give you free drinks. I went, wow, that's a very good idea. So we did exactly that. And then this uh, this drug dealer thought he was king of the kids because the owner of this place was making such a big fuss over him. And, uh, and all the suspicion went away. But that was just a moment in time where I thought, I'm going to get really badly hurt here. What a top bloke for doing that, though. Like, he didn't yeah. have to put himself no. in that situation again. No, he didn't. No, good guy. And uh, and from that time on, this is one of the, the perks of the occupation or friendship or whatever. I I went back to Cairns a lot over the years for various jobs, and um, I, I could never pay for a drink in that nightclub. <laughs> I'd go in and Brett would say, nice. no, mate, you're not paying anything for here. What you did was great, and it's all on me. Um, That's lovely. Yeah, so that that, that was one um, it, it happened a lot. Undercovers were recognised or put in positions where you, they just had to think really quickly on their feet because unlike the movies and unlike television, there were no people looking after us. There was no surveillance. We weren't wired. We were literally living, so to answer your question from way before, what sort of supervision or management? We had none. We, we existed on our wits. You know, and and long before mobile phones were invented for those young kids who are now going, oh my God, what's he talking about? Um, <laughs> <laughs> the only way uh, that you could contact the office. I remember having office, to find a payphone. <laughs> oh, exactly right. The only way you could contact the office was find a payphone, have a pocket full of twenty cent pieces, and and you quite literally. And I used to just shake my head at this. I I I could be in Mount Isa, or I might have been in Townsville, or I might have been God knows where. I'd ring the office to talk to the detective who was supposed to be looking after me. And they'd say, uh, oh, yeah, good night, mate, how you going? Yeah, look, I'm just letting you know I'm still alive. Yeah, 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 good to hear from you. Yep, yeah. uh, got anything? Well, I've got a bit. Yeah, okay, take it easy. So That was it. And how often, would you, how often would you ring in and say, yeah, I'm still alive? Oh, it depends where you were, maybe three or four days, maybe a week. Oh, wow. So there was mm. no set if Keith doesn't no. touch base with us at this, at this point we're going to call in the cavalry and try and figure out what's happening. There was none of that. No, none of that. Um, in fact, a, a friend of mine, again, I, I've written, one of one of the catalysts for my writing about Undercover was I wanted to tell the story about 
the impact of that life on young men and, and one in particular harry who who i've uh, I'm, i start with in the prologue really harry has given me his his permission to use his his correct name in this i've changed some of the names to protect the guilty <laughs> um <laughs> and let me tell you there's a few i've written about there and, and i'm not talking criminals i'm talking cops and um and harry harry had joined and volunteered for undercover like i did to to do something to change the world from an idealistic base. He was a practicing Muslim um, and, and his lifestyle reflected that. Within 12 months, he was addicted to heroin. Um, and he, he'd been on a job in Cairns. He was forced to use, and, and I refused to, and most of, you know, all of us did. That was, that was something we were told, never use heroin, never use powders. He was in a situation where he had no choice, um, was either inject or um or either you know be badly beaten or killed um and he developed a habit and and he spent the next uh, 12 months i suppose um i'm firmly of the belief being supplied with heroin by a couple of corrupt cops in the drug squad um, because it suited their purposes to have an undercover guy who who was using who they he could then go into circles that the rest of us wouldn't um or couldn't get into and uh and he uh, he was transferred back to uniform, given a couple of shitty jobs in uniform, and he uh, he was then paid out quietly with no uh, rehabilitation, no welfare, no nothing. Um, and uh, he ended up putting all of his payout money into his arm and uh, and started doing armed holdups to support his addiction. And uh, he did armed holdups in Brisbane. He did armed holdups in Adelaide. He was arrested. Uh, a few years later, he did three years in prison in Adelaide and I think six years in Brisbane. Um, almost died of a heroin overdose in a jail in Brisbane. It's terrible. I um, I found him or tracked him down years later when uh, when Larry passed away of, uh, of blood cancer and uh, I called in a couple of favours and found Harry's phone number and I owe a couple of people for that. It was really nice of them. I, uh, I rang him. Um, and I hadn't spoken to him for probably 30 years, and got him to come up to Brisbane for the funeral, and he was a completely different person. He'd, he'd absolutely rehabilitated himself. He'd, um, he'd been working in the health sector, um, I think involved in counselling addicts, um, remarried, converted to Christianity, and just, thank God, had, um, had turned his life around. I'm very proud to know him. Um, and I wanted to tell his story. Mm. Um, in this and that, that was one of the main reasons I, I started writing it. How long were you undercover for? Um, first time almost two years and then then uh, when I uh, as I said before I ended up doing a job in Cairns with Larry that we were up there for maybe four months or so then when I was uh, promoted later and I, I went back uh, I, I worked in the tactical the special weapons field for a few years um, then I, I left that and went to criminal intelligence um, so I was working on bikies, so I, I know so much about <laughs> those organisations. Um, and I was um, uh, seconded, I suppose, into another undercover job on the Gold Coast where I was buying ecstasy from from a pretty large dealer whose idea of recreation was to drop powdered ecstasy into a combination of ecstasy and LSD into women's drinks at nightclubs and uh, and then take them home and uh, and have sex with them. So it's rape. Um, for mm. sure. 
Sounds um, like so a lovely I, character. Ah, uh, look, I, I really enjoyed working on him, and he went to jail for quite some time. I really enjoyed that. Um, yeah, good. The challenge is, of course, sitting there and listening to him boast about this, and not, you know, your your base your base instinct is to tear his throat out, but mm. you actually have to play the role, which again is the challenge of undercover. It's it's um it's it's staying in character and and becoming the person without becoming the person, if that makes sense. Were you ever placed in a situation where you had to make a decision in regards to that, maintaining that moral compass compared to maintaining that undercover status? Yeah, yeah. I, th- there's one, uh, it's, it's funny what comes back to you when you write. Um, yeah. And I was writing about a uh, heroin operation on the Gold Coast that was my first solo job. And, uh, and I... I I obviously got pretty close to the importer because the purity of heroin I was buying was in the early 80%, and that, that's pretty big. Yeah. But um, I, I, I got there through um, through a couple of women who were on in the scene, and uh, I started buying from them and then worked my way up to their distributors or their suppliers and so on. But there was a young kid um, who I, I thought he was probably 18, 17. He told them he was 18. Um just a nice young bloke, you know, surfy. His father I met during the operation who used to, to bash him a bit as well, so I had an affinity for this poor kid. Yeah. And um, he was at their house one night. We'd gone out, we'd scored. Um, and, and and it's important to know that, you know, as an undercover, you actually buy the drugs. And then I, where I was living, I'd go back, I'd voucher them, I'd put them in envelopes, I'd write notes of the conversation because we weren't, we weren't wired up. Um, and then, you know, at some point I'd meet my controller from Brisbane, hand the drugs over. It's all an evidence chain that was all required. So I, I had, uh, I'd gone out, I'd bought, and then I came back to their place um, to have a drink. And then, you know, before I went back to where I was living. And Shane was there with his girlfriend. And I, I, I think from memory, you know, his, his father had probably given him a rough time again. Anyway, one of these women said, uh, oh, you should try this. And she produced a syringe tourniquet heroin and I remember standing there thinking I can't do anything um, because my cover was that I was a uh, I was a pretty big time dealer and I was making a lot of money and I didn't really care about the effect on people it was all about the dollars so for me to intervene would have been completely out of character and probably would jeopardize the entire operation so I had to stand there and watch her injecting the smack and um, wow and I found out later and this is the heartbreaking thing that um, he was only fourteen years old. <gasps> yeah, um, and I, I, I kept, I kept track of him informally. Um, yeah, and he died of an overdose when he was eighteen. Um, so oh, okay. That's that so was sad. Um, that was challenging. That was challenging, and still is. Mm. You know, um, so, um, and I, and I thought it was important to thought it was important to put that in the book as well because you know I don't think people no I know people who never work in that world understand the complexities of it and and just the emotional challenges um, and the emotional impact I, I have a lot of my friends who were undercovers after me um, and and a lot of them are damaged people you know it's um Joining for the right reasons and, and, and having the night on a white charger um, approach, you know, you just, you, you realised fairly quickly that it was, um, it was 
very difficult to think that you are making a difference. Um, and in fact, today when I got that phone call from my uh, my former colleague Pete, who I haven't spoken to for a long time, he actually said to me, he said, "Look, mate, you've said in the book that you know you, you wondered whether you made any difference at all." And he said, oh, "I just got to tell you, mate, we did. Just remember that we did we did save lives and we did help people." And um, and that was a nice phone call to get because I I often wonder about that. When you got out initially, because I think you've had a few years now to sort of retrospectively mm. um, look back and, and think on it. But when you got out of the undercover initially, did you sort of think what that was worth what I had to sacrifice or did you automatically no. then know that was not worth it? No, at the time, I, I really genuinely believed I'd done something good. Mm. Um, and, and I think you're right. It's, it's, it's with maturity and in hindsight um, that, I, that I have reflected on that. And, and I do question it. But at that time, you know, I, I didn't drink or smoke um, before I joined Undercover. And, and I tell you, within, <laughs> within two months, I was, uh, I was drinking. And um, I didn't smoke cigarettes at that point, but I was certainly able to, to have a spliff or pull a few cones with people. And, uh, and, and, I, and I didn't mind that because I thought it was for the greater good. But I did realise later that, um, you know, cannabis is not the evil thing in my world, in my view anyway, that, that I'd always mm. believed it was. And uh, and we, we started smoking together recreationally. Um, and I've made no bones about that. The only people that I could really rely on and trust were other undercovers and, and no one really understood what our life was about. And so we, we became isolationist within an isolated culture anyway. Um, was that whilst you were in or still after after you no whilst no whilst I was an undercover yeah that that was our okay. thing we'd get together and and smoke you know we'd we'd roll a, a couple of joints and and we'd just smoke recreationally because we could actually then relax mm. as opposed to you know smoking if you're setting up a five or a ten pound deal it's pretty hard to say you don't smoke um so yeah we did it was informally condoned but never formally admitted um did they sort of end up being your support network sort of did you discuss oh god I had to see this guy yeah you know this kid yep. should I like, did you sort of rely on them for the sort of for that moral yeah um, yeah we did support? yeah we did because no one else gave us that so what we what we then did was anybody knew that came into the undercover world we'd we'd embrace them immediately and and we'd get them around to where we were and we'd produce a bong and we'd say okay you're going to have to smoke this stuff. You might as well start here. Um, and then we'd teach them role plays. We'd teach them. We'd talk to them about mistakes we'd made or experiences we had. So we became an informal training group. And, you know, and again, the undercovers that came after when I started, even all these years later, when we catch up, they'll still say, Jesus, mate, thanks for what you did, because if it hadn't been for you guys, we would have had no idea. Tra formal training for covert police didn't start until I think the late 80s or maybe early 90s. Um, I was actually an instructor on a covert, a couple of covert courses, and I think that would have been around probably 91 or 92, so 10 years after I did it. Um, hmm. You mentioned that um, as part of the persona that you had to adhere to uh, that you had to tap into a side of yourself that you didn't necessarily know was there initially. 
Mm. How long did that take you to shake? Or have you shaken it? Mm. I, I don't think I ever did. Um, you know, I, I certainly, when I finished undercover and came back to normal policing, I, I had a, um, yeah, I, I was comfortable with the idea of violence if necessary. Um, mm. And uh, and I didn't, I, I wasn't the same shy, nice guy that I was when I started. Um, and I think that was shaped by, by police experiences well after undercover as well. Um, I've often said, and, and I talk to police who've particularly been in special operations or special weapons, that um, it's a fine line to walk because you, you discover that you are capable of a complete darkness in your, in your psyche if you're confronting people in an armed situation, if you squeeze the trigger and kill someone, it's, it's, it then becomes um, almost an addictive thing to do unless you're very, very careful. Um, and, and undercover was a rush. And the, the masquerading as someone else was a rush. And the fear and the adrenaline, all of that stuff was incredibly exciting. And it's like, I often liken it to You'll, you'll see um, stories or you read stories about people who've been in a theatre of war and all they want to do is come home. When they're home, all they want to do is go back. That's what undercover was like. You know, you're in the middle of a, an operation and you're, you're carrying a firearm and you're, you know, you're having pretty severe conversations with people and threatening them and they're threatening you and so on. And you think to yourself, God, I wish I was back in Brisbane, you know, with, with my mate having a beer. And when you're back in Brisbane with your mate having a beer, you're thinking, God, I can't wait to get back into that. It's so exciting. And that's the whole paradox of it. I interviewed a, an ex-ASIO spy um, a couple of episodes ago, mm. and I asked her the first time she went into an undercover situation if she was terrified, and she said, yeah, she was. Did you have that same level of fear when you went in, or were you just so thirsty for that adrenaline rush that you didn't have that fear? No, I, I certainly had the fear um, that the first few times, the first job, first operation I did undercover in Brisbane, I was called out by uh, by a target in the middle of a beer garden in a Royal Exchange Hotel because he'd had a contact who checked my number plates and they were false. Um, and he called me out on a Friday night in the middle of this place. And the only reason you'd go to this particular pub in those days was to either deal or score um, or hang out with your criminal mates. And I remember sitting there at this table, he was surrounded by his cronies and I was by myself. And I remember thinking, my God, you know, and the fear was just all consuming and I, my hands started to shake. And, and that's what happens when adrenaline dumps into your body. And, uh, and I just stood up and, and called him a dog, which in underworld terms is an informer. You know, how the fuck can you check my plate, you dog? Are you working for the cops? Are you working for the feds? You maggot, blah, blah, blah. Mm. And all the time thinking, I'm going to elbow, I'm going to smash my elbow into the side of his face and try and fight my way out of here. That was terrifying. But when I made my way out and, and, and got home and finally got to sleep and woke up the next morning, I thought, Phew, wow, I'm capable of some stuff I never thought I was capable of. So I actually got more confident in it as time went on. But, but you're still always in the back of your mind in a in a house or a bikey club or a pub or where or a car or wherever with people who are your targets you still have to have that that bit of fear in the back of your mind because if you don't have the fear you make stupid decisions so it was good to be scared but i was able to 
I was able to embrace a, um, a personality and a side of me that I didn't think I had. And, that, and as I say, that's the paradox of it. You really need to be able to control that, that, um, that dark passenger that, uh, that, that stays with you when you, you inhabit that world. Explain to me why having false number plates on your car was a bad thing if you were meant to be a drug dealer. I would have thought that would have been an added part of your cover to say, yeah, yeah well, I ripped yeah. them off some car. Well, that's what I did say to him in a very heated manner, and uh, and I can't really do it justice without all the expletives. But um... <laughs> it's the internet, Keith. It's fine. I can always bleep them out. <laughs> um, no, he 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 was sus of me. It was my first job, and I look, I had no idea what I was doing. Um, okay. I was still the nice kid from the bush. I was, you know, I was speaking in a certain manner that wasn't really how I should have been speaking, and he was just suspicious of me. I learned I learned that in that world. Criminals and drug dealers, you know, crooks, they have a, they have an intuition. And it's like when I when I was running surveillance years later, you know, you could see a crook drive into a certain area, and you could almost see invisible antennae that would come out of their head, and they they just look around and go, something's not right, something's not right. They couldn't see you, but they'd know something wasn't right, and then they turn around and drive off. Spidery senses. Yeah, yeah, it's it's that lizard brain thing, I think, mm. and um and so. He, he was sus, you know. As I honed my trade six months later, I was a different guy. I was much more um, attuned to the environment. But, but because he was sus, he called a contact in the main roads department and uh, and had the, the plates checked. And, and in his mind, I had false plates, which meant I must have been sus. Because he actually said, I think you're a narc. And, uh, and, and it was one of those things that when I called him out on it, um, I actually rang him. I gave him a couple of days, and I rang him from a phone box. <laughs> and uh, whilst we were supposed to record notes of all our conversations with our targets, sometimes you'd have a chat that was off the books. And uh, and I rang him. <laughs> this we is had one of those times, Keith. <laughs> yeah, we had. I had a chat with him that was off the books, and left him in no uncertain, uh, with no no misunderstanding that if he pulled that shit again, I'd be coming around with the big fella, um, the informant. And we'd break his fucking legs, and I would then stand on his head and blah blah blah. And and I remember I, I hung up the phone and I thought, oh, actually that was kind of cool. And, <laughs> <laughs> and he changed his attitude pretty quickly, um, you know. And and often in that world you just meet violence with violence, and I, I didn't have to physically do it, but he he firmly believed I would have. And who knows if I'd been in in a situation like that again, who the hell knows what I would have done? Because no backup again. You just do what you've got to do. You mentioned earlier that you've got daughters. Yep. How has what you've witnessed in that underworld life influenced how you've raised your girls? Were, are you Were you more vigilant? Were you more paranoid? Were you mm. less so because you kind of had that spidery sense developed? Um, look, that's a great question. It's, it's a combination of both, I reckon. I was more vigilant when they were little um, because I know what the world's like and, and I know, you know, unfortunately, I know the amount of, um, of evil that's out there. So I, I was probably very or hyper-vigilant of them when they were little. But when, as they, as they grew, it enabled me to have a genuine and open conversation about drugs. Um, you know, I'd, I'd been in a situation, I'd snorted speed at the point of a gun, so I knew what speed was like. Um, I'd smoked a lot of weed and, uh, and you know, I'd, I'd 
I'd had acid dropped in a drink, so I was tripping without knowing it, and uh, oh my God. <laughs> oh, yeah, all that stuff. Um, and and I was able to say, okay, look, this is the story. You're going to experiment. I know you will, um, and nothing I can do can stop it. But what I want you to understand is this: you know, if you're going to smoke weed, don't smoke it with someone you don't know. I'd rather you come home, or if you're going to do it at someone's house, make sure you're with people that you trust, etc. So that's an open conversation. Um, you know, I hope you never take tablets because this is why. And and I was able to say, so, you know, when I was working on the Gold Coast, I was buying ecstasy from this guy. When we had it analysed, there were there was traces of heroin, traces of LSD, blah, blah, blah. The MDMA was quite low, you know. So I was able to, to have an authentic conversation without scaring them or without them thinking, what would this old fuddy-duddy know? Um mm. So that's that's been pretty valuable, I think. And our eldest girl, when she was out, <laughs> I still have this photo that she sent me. It was beautiful. She was out when she turned eighteen, and um, and she sent me a photo from her phone with um, the caption, "Gee, you've taught me well, Dad. I didn't even know I was doing this." And it's a photograph of her covering her wine glass while she's chatting to a friend, covering it with her hand, right? Because um, I'd said people will try to drop things in your drinks, and I've seen it happen, and this is what this is what it will do. Um, so, yeah, and yeah, I, I think it's I think it's been valuable. Um, I'm still I'm probably still hyper vigilant anyway. That's a condition of PTSD. Um, I still check the doors three four times a night before I go to bed just to make sure they're locked, even though I might have checked it thirty seconds before. Um, but I'm, I'm probably not as bad as I was. How was the transition into coming out of that world? Did you did you transition directly out of undercover? into normal society after you did because you did you did tactical surveillance and all that kind of stuff but did you sort of then go back into undercover before you came out again um yeah well the undercover stuff i did later in my career wasn't full-time it was um you know i'd I'd go to the coast and score from this guy a couple of days a week or something and then i'd come back and i was i was running a um a surveillance and and, uh, intelligence area um so that was okay but with the, the initial transition from undercover back into uniform, I literally bought an ounce of heroin or a half an ounce of heroin one afternoon, which was my last job. And the very next morning, I was sitting in a hairdresser getting all my hair cut off to go back and sit in a uniform car in mobile patrols again. So there was no, when you resurface from deep undercover, I've, I've likened it to, you know, scuba divers coming up too quickly and getting a case of the bends. I, I was actually sitting in a uniform car thinking, wow, what the fuck is this? Mm-hmm. Um, after two years of undercover. So there was no, yeah, there was no transition, counselling, support. It was just, oh, well, you know, well done, mate, and uh, off you go again and start writing traffic tickets or whatever. Um, I'm pretty sure that all changed quite some time ago. Um, but in those days, it was challenging because you it sort of come from a world where, as I said before, you were isolated from the rest of the police force anyway, and you mm. came back into a world where you were supposed to just be a straight cop, um, and, and fully and a assimilate. Lot of, yeah, it was hard. It was hard to get back into that world. It just didn't do it for me anymore. Well, it would have seemed very dry and mundane, and mm. I've just been having a gun pointed at me, and now I'm writing a traffic ticket like that. That mm. seems so. Um, polar opposites yeah. in terms of of worlds and experiences yeah it was mm. boring to be honest i missed the i missed the fear and i missed the adrenaline rush and 
and I missed it all badly. How did you get to the stage where you had a gun pointed at your face and needed to snort speed? Oh, that was very early on. Um, that was, oh. I think, yeah, God, yeah. That, that, I think that was in the first four or five weeks. Um, I'd actually met a dealer at the Royal Exchange through Ivan, the one who was uh, sus of me initially. Um, and so we set up a speed deal. He was living in Orkinflower in Brisbane, which in those days was a, just an area of squats and pretty horrible little places. Now it's multi-million dollar property. Um and I met him, uh, knocked on his door that night. And again, no backup. We just, this is what we did. Still see at seven. So you always turn up at 7.30 because you never turn up on time. Would have been too sus if you were, you know, if you actually had some, some punctuality. <laughs> um, and he opened the door and he was off his nut. And, uh, and I thought, ah, oh, yeah, okay, I'll just be five minutes. I'll, I'll buy the, I think I was going to buy two or three grams or something. And, um, and I walked in, so, okay, mate, where's the gear? Here it is. Yep. Here's the money. And he said, uh, have a line with me. And I said, nah, no, no, I don't use the stuff. And he, and again, everybody had a gun. He produced a, um, from under the table, a sawn off double barrel shotgun. Um, what we call a coach gun nickname. It's, it's a, it's where you've, you've got a normal shotgun, uh, double barrel side by side. You saw off the stock to make it more concealable and saw the barrels down to, you know, really make it concealable. And he, he produced that and put it on the table between us and cocked both hammers back and said, you do a fucking line with me, I'll blow your guts out. And I thought, hmm, okie dokie. Um, Might just do a line. <laughs> well, I said, so uh, you got a straw? And, uh, he, and he got all excited because I think he just wanted someone to party with. So here I was, I snorted two lines of this stuff off a filthy table in a squat in Orkinflower where, you know, like two months before I hadn't even had a, a, a pot of beer. And um, and I went, yep, yeah, right, okay, all good. Here's the money. And I started talking at a million miles an hour and uh, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> Got in the car and drove home. And in those days, we didn't have a safe house. You you just, you lived where you lived. And I was renting a unit in on the south side of the, the river. And my flatmate was still a uniformed cop. And uh, he was on night work. And I got home and I was just speeding at a million miles an hour. And um, And in those days, again, Television stopped at midnight, didn't it? So uh, there was no TV to watch after midnight. <laughs> I think we only had AM radio or something. It was just horrible. So um, And I wasn't game to go outside of the unit because I had no idea what effect these drugs would have on me. And so I just spent all night sort of stalking around this um, this tiny little, or this small, not tiny, but the small apartment, just going, fuck, 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 fuck. And... Uh, <laughs> and I finally got to sleep at, oh, God, I think about 4 a.m. or 5 a.m. or something. Dragged my sorry butt out of bed the next morning at about, who knows, 10. Um, rode my motorbike into the city, snuck in the back way to the drug squad office because that's what we had to do. We, you know, If you're in Brisbane to hand over your exhibits rather than have them come out and meet you somewhere, no, nah, come and drop at the office. So we'd sneak in the back of CIB headquarters that was full of offenders coming in, in and out every day, which, again, very amateurish. And um, and I walked in and got the, the detective who was supposed to be, again, looking after me, and said, um, said, mate, this is what happened last night. Here's the drugs. Here's my notes. Had a shotgun. Pulled it on me. Maybe snort speed. And all this guy said was, oh, he's got a gun, does he? All right, we'll uh, put that on the running sheet. No. Are you okay? Are you right? None of that. It was just expected. So, um, yeah, so that was very early on in my career. And uh, and I vowed and declared never to be in that situation again. So <laughs> mm. it's uh, and it's and 
even as I'm saying it, I'm thinking, God, I, I went in there as such a, a clean skin, um, you know, health nut. And two years later, I emerged, I'd, uh, I'd had acid, I'd bloody had speed, I'd smoked weed like a professional, drank like a fish, smoked cigarettes when I was drinking, you know, well, but what it did was it, it gave me um, a better insight into the world because I no longer regarded people as black and white. I no longer mm. regarded good and bad. I actually knew that there were shades of grey in the world um, and that people, yeah, who commit offences, sometimes they've been in a situation where they haven't had much choice, um, that not all people who sell pot were bad, not all people. In fact, as, as, as bad as it sounded to me then, um, not everybody who sold heroin was, was inherently evil either. Um, I didn't, you know, I hated what they were doing. But some of them were pretty um, affable, funny people, and, the, mm. and that was that was the again the the paradox or the dichotomy of it is that you know an undercover goes into an operation knowing they're going to betray somebody or everybody, knowing they're going to betray everybody, and yet what you do is you become quite friendly with people, knowing in the back of your mind that their futures are about to change in ways that they can't foretell. And it's all down to you. Um, it's interesting, though, that the guy with the number plates had an issue with your number plates on the car, mm. and yet you were living with a uniformed police officer and mm. no one, like, did anyone follow you back to your, your apartment and say, hang on, mate, your housemate's a copper. Like, what are you doing? Yeah. Um, and, again, so we became very adept at counter-surveillance very quickly. So <clears throat> whenever I drove anywhere, I'd um, I'd clean this. So called cleansing yourself so i'd um you know i'd i'd go around roundabouts about three times or i'd go through a red light on purpose or i'd drive down a um a cul-de-sac and then turn around to see if anybody was behind me you became very adept at, at, at covering your tracks um so that just became a way of life you know and and even um oh, i don't know maybe the late 80s um undercover agents were provided with cars they were provided with a safe house that was, you know, under an assumed name, so they didn't have to worry about any of that. But when we were doing it, it was it was pretty much fly by the seat of your pants. And uh, over to you, really. Um, even creating identities, you know, we didn't... The only thing from memory we had in the drug squad was um, uh, a collection of driver's licences, because in those days they weren't photographic, they were simply paper licences. So we could type up, you know, a licence in any name that we wanted. And then, uh, that's right, and you'd, you'd, you'd type it up, then you'd drop it on the floor and step on it a few times and roll it around the dirt to make it look a bit aged. Then use that driver's license to go and open a bank account because you didn't need 100 points of identity. So I had something like three or four different identities and different bank accounts and driver's licenses. And I, I actually created a different wallet for each one, you know, with a library card and sort of ID that you could get pretty easily. That if anybody ever looked through your license, there it was. You know, whatever name you were using was all there. But we, we had to do all of that ourselves. Um, so the, the false plates were, as I said, literally out of a cardboard box in the drug squad. And when I spoke to Ivan later and remonstrated with him quite substantially, <laughs> how dare he call me a cop, um, <laughs> I said, uh, give me 100 bucks, I'll get you a set, you dickhead. I'm not going to deal with someone and have my, have my real plates on there so you can follow me home and rip me off. Mm. And that actually changed the tide of things. That's when you could hear him go, "Ah, oh, okay, hey, that's uh, that's not a bad idea," you know. 
sometimes you mm. weren't exactly dealing with Mensa candidates. <laughs> <laughs> You're in the corporate world now. Mm, yep. How have you found your experiences and the lessons that you've learnt in that life transition you over to, like, how does that, um, what am I trying to say? Yeah, no, what, how, how, how does it, now? yeah, how's it transferable? Um, yeah, I think, thank you. Yeah, that's okay. <laughs> Who's interviewing who here? Um, <laughs> I don't know, but I think you're interviewing yourself. <laughs> um, I, I've said for years that, that cops have transferable skills they're not aware of. And, and whether it's, um, whether it's undercover or being a detective or being in special weapons or whatever, you, you're able to make decisions based on fact and not perception. And, and, uh, and for me in the corporate world, I've always been able to take a mental breath, take a step back and assess a situation um, and then come up with a solution rather than I've seen a lot of people react emotionally in the corporate world um, mm. and make quick decisions that aren't right because they, they think things have to happen immediately. And, and I've been, I've been in a number of corporate roles since I resigned from the police and, um, and I'm, I'm quite renowned in, in those, I have been renowned in those roles of my favourite saying being, let's take a breath, no one's going to die today, okay? Um, because it's only business, it's not, it's not life and death. And, and I think any police officer who has left and gone into the corporate world would probably echo those comments. You know, they... Um, because they they see a side of the world that no one does, and, and the average general duties cop these days are going to twenty jobs a shift, you know, and they're making decisions that that often people's welfare and safety um, hinge on, and they're able to make those decisions in a very clever, calculated, and um, and astute fashion, and and that's incredibly transferable to the corporate world. The other thing that um, I'm able to do, I think, is is actually tell when people are bullshitting to me fairly mm. easily, you know. Mm. Um, um, and and you know, I'm 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 quite adaptable also to environments. So, you know, the reality is in the corporate world, you often think to yourself, oh, "I would like nothing more than to walk over there and bounce your head off that table," <laughs> but I'm going to pretend that I'm interested in what you're saying. <laughs> So <laughs> there is that. <laughs> Would you be okay with your daughters going into the police force or into the undercover world? Yeah, I, I'd be very happy with them going into the police force. I think I think it's a great profession. I think it's mm. it's, it's noble and it's uh, and as cliched as it sounds, I think it's noble. I think it's just. I think it's a wonderful job. Um, these days, I don't know any specifics of how coverts work. Uh, I don't want to know because I don't need to. And but I know that I do know enough to say that uh, it's a different covert world than it was when I was doing it. Um, so I'd I'd probably be much more comfortable if they wanted to do that than I would have been if I was my father or so on back when I was doing it. Does that make sense? Um, yeah. Because back in our day, it was pretty risky stuff, and mm. and uh, and you know, I, I I often shake my head at it. and I look at the age of my girls, um, and they're not much older than I was when I was doing this stuff, and it still horrifies me to think that, gee, you know, we we were just little 
or young kids who were let loose in a world with, um, as I've said to someone before, you know, a gun or guns, plural, um, lots of cash, as much weed as you wanted and no supervision. What could possibly go wrong with that? Yeah, you can see, you can certainly see how um, some people may not have the same moral compass and and be led astray in in mm. those circumstances. So yeah, I had so I had some mates who who went to the dark side. Yeah, yeah, mm. um, very sadly. Which is probably all in your book, guns, drugs, and lights. That's a beautiful segue. There you go. <laughs> You're good at this. <laughs> I'm learning. I'm learning, Keith. Please go out and buy it, everybody. It's an amazing read. Where can we purchase it, Keith? Is it on Amazon? Yeah, it's um, it's on Amazon. Uh, it's uh, on Kindle, Amazon Kindle, Amazon hard copy. Um, Booktopia is probably if you wanted yeah. a hard copy online, that's the best um, the best way to get it. Is um, there an audio version? Yeah, there is. Um, it's on Audible. Um, do you read it? No, it's it's read by um, I wanted to initially, but it's read by a guy called Joel Jackson, who's a an incredible young Australian actor. Um, he's uh, he's been lead in a couple of Australian um, series uh, and just a really good guy. And I um, I'd, I'd coincidentally met him a couple of years ago when he was researching a role about a cop. So when this came up, I contacted him, and I'm listening to it now, and I'm thinking. I know this story and I know how it ends, but damn, I can identify with this guy. Um, so he's, he's done a much, much better job than I could have. And this is the first 10 years of your career. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. And then there's going to be a sequel? Yeah, there is. Yeah. I've, I've written, um, I've almost finished the sequel actually. Um, so that's about, uh, it's about my experience in, in tactical operations or special weapons. Um, surveillance, covert, uh, some, some shootings I was involved in and, and really the effects of PTSD on not just me but, but a lot of my colleagues. And, uh, mm. and it's, it's about the journey of PTSD and the recovery. Um, so, yeah, look forward to that one, folks. Oh, I, I will have to have you back on for that one, Keith. And, oh, thank uh, you. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me on, Fiona. It's, um, it's great to chat to you. Thanks for taking a moment to listen, everyone. We hope this episode inspired you as much as it did us. If you know somebody who also needs a little inspiration, then please share this podcast with them. Also, don't forget to subscribe on your fave podcast app and rate and review us because that helps inspire us to keep making them. 